Welcome to the Zion Art Podcast, presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. And joining me this week as co-host is Eric Biggert. Hello. We are here to talk about the International Church Competition. The 11th. The 11th. No, it's not annual because it's every three years. What would you say if something's every three years? And this is a little different format than how we've usually run the podcast. We are usually doing interviews with artists, collectors, um, historians, uh, talking about the role of the arts in church culture. And yesterday we were given a preview of the church's international competition. And we want to give you an impromptu reaction to our experience being there and seeing the works. So what we're going to do for this podcast is I'm going to start out by giving a kind of general overview of what the contest is. And um, then and we'll talk about our general reactions to the show, if that's all right with you, Eric. Mm -hmm. And then after we've done that, we can dive into individual works. Mm -hmm. Um, So in general, um, and, and the reason why I'm starting with this is I've had to do my homework a little bit. I've been asked by Fine Art Connoisseur magazine to write an article on the church competition for their readers. It's an international magazine. They have probably very little to no context for what uh, Latter-day Saint um, art culture looks like. And so the piece I'm writing is a general introduction. For that, I was uh, able to meet with Lara Tato um, a week before the preview that we had yesterday and go through the show one-on-one with her, get her insights into it. And Lara Tato is the Global Art Acquisitions Manager for the Church History Museum, which oversees the the contest. And uh, this is her second competition that she's uh, seen. So I'll include a few of the things she had to say about it. But for those of you who haven't heard of the contest before, it happens every three years. This is the 11th they've held. So this means they've been doing it for 33 years. And it's held at the Church History Museum in Salt Lake City which is on the west side of Temple Square, if you've never been there before. And the exhibition is online. So you can see the images and its labels, and we'll have a link to that on our website, zionartsociety.org, where you can go and look at the pieces that, uh, that are in the show. Um, when I talked with Laura, she gave me a general interview. She said, inter- uh, sorry, overview. She said that uh, there were 960 submissions and it was a, a two-stage process. They solicit works from all over the world. They put notices in church publications, and they also try and tell local organizers wherever they are, whether they're in Indonesia, Angola, or London, to tell artists about this show, which is also part of its limitations. It was interesting as I was talking to Laura about this. She said that um, three years ago, there were there were there was a couple a missionary couple who knew about a local artist in i believe it was in vietnam and they went out of their way to make sure that that artist submitted and now that that couple wasn't there maybe the same people aren't invited again so this is obviously a challenge for the church in general that when it has a contest every three years that some people are always going to know about it And some people who are maybe converts or who just aren't as connected to church culture aren't always going to know about it, which means that the culture, the the contest changes on a regular basis, just on the basis of who's submitting. There were 960 submissions. And out of those 960, which they all were submitted virtually as um, 
as a, 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 just by email. Then they take a certain number of them, which they physically ship at the church's cost to be judged by the jury. Which is not atypical. No, not atypical. But it's nice to know that it happens both ways, right? That you've got, mm-hmm. you've got both a, a digital um, uh, judging that's a preliminary, and then based on that, you have a physical one that's at the church's cost. And at the end of that process, they had 151 works by 152 artists, because one work was the work of two artists working together. And there was maybe seven or eight sculptures, right? Yes. Well, there were more than that. I yeah. think there were more because you'd have installation pieces, plus yeah. there were a number of sculptures. So they were all media. You had pieces that were um, that were traditional oils, waters, acrylics, um, uh, bronzes. You had pieces that were in plaster. You had pieces that were in clay. You had um, work that was done in uh, fabric. You had paper cutouts. You had... Soil. Soil. You had... Um, Bronze. There were um, ink, uh, ink pieces, and you had some pieces that were, um, um, you know, it felt like this year versus the one that had happened, the, the 10th competition, that there were fewer um, large installation pieces, that there were, uh, and maybe I'm wrong on that. That's just my gut feeling when you walked into the space. But it did feel like it took up more space. It I know they did. cleared out extra space there, specifically for this show. There is a space, and this is something Laura said that she really pushed for, is that they had um, an area of the museum that's dedicated to a children's exploration section of church history in the museum. And they physically cleared out that space, took down these long-held displays in order to have a much bigger space for it. And it shows. It was... I was very excited about seeing the show. And and in general, it was a very impressive show. I felt like it was different than what I had seen during the 10th competition. I'd be interested in your overall impression of it, Eric. So my overall impression of it was... Um, the way that I looked at it and my my judgment of it was I was surprised at some of the artists that were there and I was surprised at some of the artists that weren't there. Okay. And I was really pleasantly surprised by a lot of artists I'd never heard of and a lot of artists I had heard of. I thought, yeah, that's about right for them. I wasn't blown away by any of the the ones that I had I'd really known. There was a, a few exceptions to that rule, but I felt like the... The unknown people really stepped up their game. The well-known people did what they're well-known for. Mm-hmm. And um, they kind of met in the middle in a comfortable place. Um, and it's probably a good thing because the theme of this particular show was very purposely vague. I'm so glad you brought up the theme because that that uh, is something that uh, I didn't cover. And that the theme was... So it was a two-part theme, which I just learned from looking at the the sign on the front of the show, which said that the theme was Meditations on Belief and Psalm 77, 11 and 12, which says, I will remember the works of the Lord, surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. And then the statement after that goes into this idea of meditation, interestingly enough. Um not on the idea of belief. So I talked with Laura about the choosing of this theme and about the theme itself, because it differed a great deal from past 
thematic approaches. In the past, they were very specific. The last one was tell me the stories of Jesus, which meant you were going to get a lot of images of Jesus. I, I remember an exhibition, uh, one of the competitions before was about the tree of life, right? So they could be more specific in the past. Meditations on belief, I think, was deliberately um, more vague in what they were open to see. And there was some pushback in the community that we had heard anecdotally on mm-hmm. that. Um, and um, I think because there are probably two camps, in my opinion. There are people who feel like it's very helpful to have a very specific direction. Mm-hmm. And then there are those who feel like they don't want a very specific direction. They want to paint something that 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 is their yeah. own direction. And we were talking yesterday with another museum employee who said, even in the Tell Me the Stories of Jesus exhibition, when they're expecting a bunch of pictures of Jesus, they got stuff that had absolutely nothing to do with that theme. Right. So I think that made them realize that trying to narrow people down to a theme, though maybe helpful in giving some people guidance, but inevitably people just aren't going to pay attention to the theme. Yeah. And I asked, I asked Laura the question when I interviewed her one-on-one about a week ago Mm -hmm. that um, I said, uh, one of the things that I look forward to as, as just a, just a consumer of art is I want to go to the show to see what's going on. I I see it like an ice core sample Mm -hmm. where you, you get an idea of, of what is happening in church culture right now. And, and that's always going to have some things that are predictable and some things that are surprising. I said, if we were to take that metaphor and say, what is in this ice core sample? She said that given the broad theme, she didn't know what would come subject wise or stylistically. And she was surprised that there were themes that clearly emerged yeah. in the show. So do you want to say what some of those themes yeah, were? Yeah, I was going to say noticed? in the statement, they kind of list out and you can see how the people who, who curated it grouped those themes together. Um, they said, first of all, nature as a site of devotion. Um, the second was a sense of awe and humility communicated and captured in the universe and in the stars, uh, devoted women seeking revelation, expressing gratitude, um, and stories from the scriptures. Oh, explorations of family and ancestors, adversity, suffering, healing and hope, and the temple as a place of refuge. So there's like 10 themes there. I noticed a handful of themes just walking around the way they'd grouped things together um, thematically, which was interesting. Yeah, they didn't stylistically group things together as they had done in the 10th competition, which was clearly you had kind of, at least this is the way I saw it and the way I know other people have saw it, as having the traditionalists in one section mm-hmm. and then the experimentalists and the contemporary artists in another. Yeah. I know contemporary is a problematic word and so is experimental, so I'm sorry that if, I, if I'm misusing those. I don't mean... I, I, I think that you would just see that the, the non-traditional, let's say, were in another room. And here, they were mixed together and it was um, thematically mm-hmm. organized. Yes. And the ones that will stand out to you when you go see it is there's one room in particular where there's just a line of paintings and they're all of women most of them are single women on their own in portraiture in a single row. There's also a room that has like three or four chairs, like paintings with chairs in them, which I thought was interesting. That was interesting too. Um, 
they didn't list that as one of the themes of chairs, but what the chairs represented. No, and I, I think that if we were to... I, before we dive into a few works that I, I want to discuss in particular that, that, that interested me, um, I want to talk about how this show, I don't know how much of a reflection it is of the professional artists that are happening. There were a lot of professional and very serious artists in it. But something I walked around um, uh, um, asking myself, because I saw a lot of artworks by artists that I'd never heard of before, is, is this show like the Springville of Arts spirituality and religious um, competition, which happens every year, which is another in our culture, big competition. And I've talked to many artists who said, once they've submitted to that and placed in it, that they see their work as being done and checked off and they don't submit in it again. And I, I looked around and I saw some names that I recognized, but I also saw names of artists that I didn't see names of artists that I was planning on seeing. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't know if it, that could just be a matter of scheduling time wise. They didn't have uh, a, a work yeah. to submit to the contest. It seemed like a lot of the works were works that I had seen in other competitions, yeah. including those held by the Zion Art Society. I talked to one of the judges about this, and one of the rules was it has to be no older than three years. Okay. I'm not sure how they verify that, because I'm pretty sure I saw at least one that I knew was older than that. Um, but almost everything that means was new. Right. Um, but there were some things that we'd seen before, and if you've been to any of our previous Zion Art Society shows or seen them on our website, you'll recognize a, a handful of those pieces as well, and a number of artists as well. Um, but in terms of being, like you said, an ice core sample, um, I feel like it gives us a really good idea of what's going on outside of our bubble of Utah art and Utah artists that we're familiar with, yeah. and gave us a better idea of what's going on outside of the state though I still don't have a firm grasp on what's going on internationally. I also, another thing that I think is, is the theme is also an indication of is that we've moved away in this contest and in the themes from an official art, in my opinion. So if you came to this contest in its very beginnings, Dr. Richard Oman, who we've done an interview with to talk about the foundations of the church, the international church competition, he said that he envisioned it as being a lot of folk art where you would go to indigenous cultures around the world and you would find out how Mormonism influenced their indigenous art. Mm -hmm. And over time, folk art was a part of, of the competition, a big part of the competition. There were some folk art pieces in this show as well. I think also it's hard to delineate what is folk art and what's not sometimes. And then over time it became very professionalized and you would see in the eight and the seventh, eighth, ninth competitions there was a lot of art that you could see put immediately into a church publication for a broad audience. Yeah. But when you talk about meditations on belief, you're immediately soliciting as a competition personal pieces, which maybe are so personal in nature that they don't make sense to share in an official church publication. And that was one of the takeaways that I had from this was there were a lot of pieces that, the, that were in the competition that were very personal, powerful pieces, but not broad consumption pieces. Yeah. Can I, I want to share something else that I read um, okay. that was also on the wall, which I don't think I've ever seen before or heard anyone 
um, explicitly say, but it says the 11th iteration of the show has three purposes. Purpose number one is encourage the creation of quality art by Latter-day Saint artists. And we can pick these all apart <laughs> separately. Like what does quality mean and what does Latter-day Saint mean? Um, the second is showcase the breadth and diversity of Latter-day Saint cultural production made manifest through the various styles, techniques, media, and voices. Hmm. And the third purpose, which is the one that uh, I'm a little confused about, is expand the art canon from familiar images that currently adorn the halls of ward buildings to include new approaches to depicting gospel principles. That's interesting. And it goes right along with a conversation I had with Lara, which I said, what is... You've acqu- they acquired 15 pieces from the from the competition. There were purchase prizes. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't... I think I've got a list that she sent me of all of them. But I think they announced it on their yeah. website as well. So, but, real, real quick, there is an awards ceremony on the 14th, which will be the day that this podcast goes live where they will be okay, announcing so all of that that's where they'll at be the assembly hall that evening. So, um, so then I guess they'll find out the same day as this podcast comes out. Yeah, the question, we're not going to spoil it. The, the, the question that I had for Lara was, is after they're purchased, what happens then? Mm-hmm. And I think her, her answer was satisfying and unsatisfying at the same time. Um, not because I think anything that, that she's done, I think it's just the limitations of what the museum can do. Um, I said to her, so what's the end game? You mentioned in that third one, the idea of it expands what's current example is what's on the ward house walls. I said to her, so what do you do when you buy this? Does this, do these works that are the 15 you purchase, do they get injected into the bloodstream of the church somehow? Do they get immediately put into a magazine? Do they get put into church educational materials? Do they get put on the website? And she said, that's not my responsibility and I don't have control over that. But what I can do is I can purchase things that have the potential to do that. Yeah. And that's a that's a very reasonable answer. It's the idea that their job as the church is to buy the things and then hopefully they get picked up on and exposed to the editors. And she invites all of those people who are the decision makers because it's a large organization. Yeah, I'm not right? sure I'm going to be as forgiving <laughs> because I talked to one of the artists about this and she said, you know, the church has bought one of my paintings before. And I said, that's great. Where is it? And she said, it's in storage. As soon as they bought it, it went in storage. So my take on that is that when they do purchase something, they first go photograph it so that they have a digital file of it and then they put it away in storage. And then all those things you said and that this purpose says, which is putting them in ward buildings, putting them in magazines or other publications and reproducing them, all of that's going to come from the digital file. All of that will come from the photo that they took. And that painting will probably stay in storage until the end of days because there is no place to hang them anymore. And that I think is, okay, so this could be a separate discussion, but I agree with you. And I think there's some perspective on this, which is that almost every museum has only a small fraction of its works on view at any time. And that is true of, of the Met is the most guilty of this. And you can argue that they shouldn't be acquiring as much or they should have more space. It's more true of the church history museum potentially than other museums because it doesn't have, for the number of artists that we've got in the church, proportionally it doesn't have as much exhibition space. And you could call, like this could be a clarion call where we could say, okay, 
anybody who's listening who has power in the church on this. Let's turn all 15 visitor centers, all um, church administration buildings, the Relief Society building, everything into... Well, that's what I was going to say is where, where in the church can you go see original art right now? Number one, conference center is where the best permanent collection is, in my opinion. But you have to go through the gatekeepers, which are docents at the con- Who have to center. take you on tour. You can't wander yes, freely. you can't go freely. The second is the Church History Museum, which has one exhibition space upstairs because the main floor is dedicated to the church history story. Um, and the, the basement floor has some stuff that rotates through, but it's mostly like meeting space. The Salt Lake Temple has some amazing historical art in it, but unfortunately everyone needs a temple recommend to go in and well, see Well, and it. they've also, the brethren have given the direction that they don't want the temples to be seen as museums. Correct. Internally. There's nothing in the that. visitor centers that's original, um, either of the visitor centers on Temple Square, and then there's a handful of things in the church administration building, and I think the Relief Society building, and probably in a few offices and you can- of... General authorities and, and you can see the yin and yang on this too, which is all of those spaces, almost all of them, are run mostly by volunteers. And do you want to put original works in places where they're an insurance liability? And and there are arguments for it and they're against it. How is that different than the Met, though? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it, but but I think I mean, but the point is yeah. here, getting getting back to this competition and what they do with the works that are acquired. I think that it is the job of the museum to hold a competition and to acquire these works. The advocating of of these works internally as being distributed to other mm-hmm. um, institutions within the church, such as magazines, educational materials, and and other buildings and, yeah. and possibility. That thing that to me that would be a wonderful cause to take up as another job responsibility yeah. that someone that that should be the responsibility of another person who's different than acquiring them. Yeah. But let's let's be clear also that a lot of these things are like you said very personal expressions of belief or yeah. meditation. Some of them are very local. They're yeah. specifically African, they're specifically Mexican. So the idea that everything in this show would be able to go to adorn the halls of ward buildings. Um, it's it it means that there's a process, in theory, that exists for art to go from the show and then through some pipeline and then end up in your specific church yeah. building one day. I don't know if that you were to take the, if you were to take is. the plain language of that that uh, that third. That I don't third think it's condition. insignificant that they specifically said the halls of ward buildings. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it is either. I think it's a wonderful idea. We we Micah and I have specifically done this exercise um, in a number of ward buildings where we've gone around and photographed all of the art that are in ward buildings and then held a fireside. And in, asked, the ward in the ward building and asked members of the ward, let's say an alien comes down or an immigrant from Mongolia, someone who doesn't speak the language, who wouldn't understand the words coming out of the pulpit and who can't read anything on the walls and go around and look at all the art in your building and then come back and tell us what, what you the value. people believe that worship in this church. And um, nine times out of 10, it's the same story, which is there's a lot of images of Christ with children there's one or two maybe Book of Mormon images. There's one or two maybe church history images. And that's about it. A lot of duplicates of the same stuff we've been seeing for a long time. 
So if in fact it's almost always frozen in the period that the building was created yeah. too. So if it's if it's but, if it was made in 1978, it's the art that was. But this is because there are rules as to what you can hang on the walls in a church building. You can't just put up anything, and you can't commission new art yeah. for a church building. That brings up a really interesting idea: is if that was true, that it's frozen in the era of when the building was done. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be cool if it was frozen with every church competition too? <laughs> so a building is done in 2019, and it looks like. Maybe not the 2019 competition, but the one right before that. Yeah. It'd be interesting. Okay, let me dive into it. It's an ice core sample of an ice core sample. Is what that's right. Saying. That's right. <laughs> okay. Let me, we've gone down the uh, the inception yeah. uh, uh, hole. So here we've got a work that, that prompted the conversation of what we do with these collections in the first place. It blew me away. It is titled, And I Am Here by Danielle Hatch. Um. It, it, she starts off, and I'm just going to read what she what's written on the wall label. She says, This project began with my childhood set of scriptures, which after years of use were falling apart. When you look at the work, it looks like a dress at a distance. And it looks kind of like a period 19th century yeah, pioneer. pioneer dress. Yeah. And as you get closer, you white. realize that the dress, which is lit from inside, is stitched together scriptures. It's the pages from her her scriptures that were falling apart and it has all of her highlights and, and marginalia from when she was growing up and writing in them. And, and, uh, when I saw this, I said, just on like on a museum level, how do you store this? It's like storing some of the early Mahali Naj plastic pieces that all fell apart within 10 years in, in early museums in the, the first quarter of the 19th century of the 20th century. What do you do as a, with this piece? I found it very meaningful, and I think it shows that um, that they were willing. This is not the kind of piece that you could show in a ward house, and I applaud that that we've got it. I applaud also that it shows how different than we are than our <laughs> ancestrally. You and I have some Jewish uh, some some Jewish roots, Eric. Mm-hmm. Jews aren't allowed to uh, do anything with the words of the scriptures. They would have had to bury this or burn this. In the backyard, a lot of Catholics have problems with the idea of how you handle words. And I and Lara, without me saying anything, said, isn't this interesting that it brings to mind what we do with the scriptures and whether or not what we can and can't do with the word of God to turn it into a work of art is an interesting question. And I've got a lot of thoughts about it. Um, I don't know if we have time. I, I mean, we probably shouldn't delve into it. Do you have any? Did you see this when when you walked through? Yeah. Did you have an initial reaction to it? It may not be one of your ten, but it was one of mine. Um, no, I. To be honest with you, I didn't notice it was the scriptures. You didn't notice it in no. person. I walked. I walked <clears throat> past it quick enough. I, oh my heavens! I just saw that it was writing, um, and I just thought it was book pages because people do this all the time, where they tear pages out of a book and then make like a flower bouquet out of paper in their house to make a woman's dress out of the scriptures alone oh it's such a great idea and it's it was such a it was a powerful piece not sure it would have gone over great in first century israel (laughs) no 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 (laughs) just saying so there's another work here that is um it's called the the plan of salvation by julie yuan yim she is uh from hong kong based in hong kong it is chinese paper cutting and it has two different kinds of paper cutting plus her ink signature on it. And the thing that fascinated me about this is that it has 
as as an art historian, it spoke to me about what happens when you have two very different artistic traditions that come together. So this is clearly Asian influenced. It starts at the center. It looks like a, a spiral. It goes from the center out into the story of her conversion. But she has at the very center, God the Father and Jesus Christ appearing in the first vision to Joseph Smith. The next stage is the story of Adam and Eve, the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac. So she is she's using her own narrative of how she sees these scriptures and stories working together. And then it leads in one of the later panels to her baptism, her confirmation, her marriage, her having a family, her getting old and retiring, and then her eventually being welcomed into heaven. And it is all done in a paper cut, very detailed paper cut fashion um, with what you could argue being a mix of very Latter-day Saint um, iconography. I mean, that is a Western God and Jesus in a non-Western setting. Mm -hmm. That's, to me, part of what this competition does so well, right, is it brings out images like this. It shows how our traditions um, in, in, uh, in, you know, in a church that's, that's, you know, for all intents and purposes, centered in a Western tradition and culture happens when it runs into other cultures and how they make it their own in a dynamic way that we would never, that, that here locally growing up in Bountiful, Utah, I would have never encountered. Do you have anything you want to say about this piece before we move on? No, no, no. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I want to go to something that I felt was uh, um, a little, um, it's a piece that I'd seen before by Jenity Page. And it is titled Coming Full Circle. Now, we'd seen this before because it had been shown in the Certain Women competition, not competition, the Certain Women exhibition that was held um, in collaboration with the Zion Art Society. When was that? Last year. Yeah, I, I can't remember <laughs> of which month it was in particular. Yeah. And this piece was done um, as Jenity Page's mentor, Bill Whitaker, William Whitaker, the artist, um, had passed away, and they were very close at the time. She was working with him um, on a regular basis in his studio um, at his passing. And I, I went to his funeral. Um, there were anybody who, who, who's a figurative artist within the church, um, it seems like almost every, I don't want to use absolutes like that, but almost everybody, um, and many people who are outside of the church who are involved in the larger figurative movement that's been happening over the past 30 years have known and looked up to William Whitaker. And to think that meditations on belief um, would be taken by Jenity Page as something where she could use this religious image that represented her mourning and her hope for, um, for herself, for... William Whitaker, that it was itself a, a the passing on of the skills to her that were uh, uh, by him that were exhibited in this, and that it was a dedication to him, in some regards, and that it includes. I saw this five or six times. I don't know if you saw this. I thought, are we into halos now? Are we okay with halos? 
I'm okay with halos. I'm fine with halos. Halos are a symbolic uh, depiction of holiness anyway. And and it seems like uh, this is one of these symbolic devices that we had eschewed in many cases in our art in the past. I know as somebody who has tried to propose works to the church um, when they've asked me for, for, for uh, consultations, one of the first things I'll hear from somebody is, sorry, we can't take that. It's got a halo in it. Lots of halos in the show. Yeah, I seem to remember the last show we did. Maybe it was the Certain Women exhibition. I went around and counted halos, and it was like a third of the paintings that showed an image of somebody had a halo in them. So I think we're past it. Yeah. I, I think we're past it. <laughs> I think we are. I can't bring up the Jenity Page piece without bringing up the uh, Emily McPhee piece, which uh, is a... Um, which is a piece that's also a woman by herself in black clothing mourning the death of her father, who was another pillar in, in, the, uh, in the Mormon arts world, James Christensen. So Emily McPhee um, and Jenity both have these very strong figurative pieces of women in mourning um, uh, figures who were both artistic influences within the church. And that was nice to see mm-hmm. that in a church competition, you started to see... Um, generational representation of dynasties, right? Dynasties of not even in blood, but just artistic dynasties mm-hmm. of work that is that is influencing current competitions. And and more so than that, I was having this discussion with another artist yesterday that if you look at the heritage of the church, let's go back to the first art teachers in. Utah, which were the CCA Christensen, George Ottinger, and Dan Wakeland, right? They were there teaching art, and then you have the next generation who are the temple art missionaries who go to the first presidency and say, nobody here is good enough to paint the interior walls of the temple, which is a subtle burn on their three teachers. Um, and the first presidency agrees and send them, sends them to France, and they go learn at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts how to paint, um, landscapes in particular, they come back, they do the temple, and then the five of them um, basically break up and go start the Springfield Museum. They lead the University of Utah's art program. They go to BYU. They go to Utah State. And then from there, another generation comes after them, which leads into the like A.B. Wright, LeConte Stewart generation. And from there is another generation after them, which is where you get the William Whitakers and the Robert Barretts and the people who are teaching at BYU over the last 30 or 40 years. And now we're getting the fruits of that generation. So we are one, two, three, four, five generations now. That's it. Five generations into the lineage of Mormon art. When the first artist, the first person who knew what oil paint was stepped foot into the Valley. It's not that long of a time, but there is a lineage. And I think, I think the second point that they bring up, that you brought up, there was the three, the three goals of the competition, mm-hmm. one of them being expanding the canon. Mm-hmm. It is kind of a reference to this, this idea that I, I know Lara has spoken about publicly a lot, and she has done in association as she's uh, been the Global Art Acquisitions Manager. She's worked with the Mormon Art Center, which is now called the Center mm-hmm. for Latter-day Saint Art or the Latter-day Saint Art Center. Art. Center for Latter-day Saint Art, art um, artists. They have know. been very, um, uh, they've been they've been very aggressive in saying that we need to move away from this representational art. And when you've only got five generations of canon, mm-hmm. 
you don't have a super deep iconographic aesthetic bench mm -hmm. to draw from. And it does beg an interesting question of can you, can you force an expansion of diversity or is it something that has to happen yeah. gradually and naturally can over I, time? Can I read the last sentence of yeah. this poster that was on the wall? It says, such efforts shift our view of Latter-day Saint art from a centralized model to one that expansively captures new voices, expands our cultural legacy, and redefines our visual heritage. Yeah. Which to me reinforces that idea that part of the goal here is for expansion and redefinition. Yeah. And, and I think that there were, you know, the, I want to talk about that specifically within one piece, which is the Walter Rain. Did you spend, did you see the Walter Rain? Oh, I saw the Walter Rain. Oh my gosh. That's my, oh, so Walter I don't know Rain. if at the end of this recording, we're going to pick winners and losers, but that's yeah. my winner. <laughs> okay. So I want you to start off with the Walter Rain and why, why it grabbed you. So everybody knows Walter Rain. Right, and if probably, you don't know Walter, probably Rain, the you most know, prolifically yeah. um, patronized, yeah, contemporary artist by the church. He basically spent the '90s depicting scenes from scripture for use in reproductions. Right, they're all over every temple now. Every temple, every the conference center has probably the largest collection of his originals, mm -hmm. and the There's latest like twenty-four, twenty-two something, and the latest manual by the church. I think has more Walter Rains than any other one artist. Yes, but in the last few years he's gone kind of a different route. Um, and it started with a piece that we had of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And I've seen it more and more in pieces um, that they're becoming a lot more ethereal, more airy, less figurative, and more um, emotional. I don't know how else to put it. And this particular piece to me is the culmination of this route that he's gone on it is titled for us mm -hmm. it is large it is um they've got it 36 by 56 inches but it's the other way around it's 56 high 36 wide yeah oil on canvas and it's the crucifixion and as far as i can remember it was the only crucifixion scene i saw there i saw one more but i also asked lara this we both kind of She's she's got a, a memory having been exposed to a lot of different um, LDS art in her role, obviously. And I said, "How many crucifixion scenes have mm -hmm. you seen?" And we started going through, and you know, it'd be hard to name more than a, than twenty. Yeah, right? in, in, I, in all of, and that's not because we don't believe uh, the church doesn't teach that Christ was crucified. Mm -hmm. it, it it's that the emphasis of the church, especially in the twentieth century, has been on. Um, Mm -hmm. has been on resurrection. But if you go back and read the hymns and the scriptures and well, talk, so, it's actually more references to So this is the thing that throws me. That's my right? own pet, uh, Yeah. Thing. This is the thing that so throws awesome. me, is you look at it and you're like, clearly this is the crucifixion. Christ's arms are outstretched. His head is back. He's looking up. But in the description it says, no, this isn't the crucifixion. This is the moment after the resurrection of Christ descending post-resurrection. But he's holding specifically the same form as the Christ on the cross. He says specifically, his outstretched arms mirror his position on the cross, as does the deep red behind him. This moment, said Rain, was alluded to in ancient times through the wave sheaf offering. I have no idea what that means. It is a ritual where, um, <laughs> in Judaism, where and and where where they uh, use sheaves of wheat to represent this uh, this sacrifice. So you can see through it mm -hmm. abstractly, a, uh, you can see several places where it looks like there are wheat, heads of wheat mm -hmm. 
that are that that, that are that are pulled through it. There's another one here. Mm-hmm. So unbelievable. Yeah. Emotional piece. Maybe the most emotional piece for me in the entire show. Agreed. And this is where Walter um, hits it out of the park. And here's somebody who was trained by um, by by very um, uh, uh, well-heeled illustration, traditional academic artists in California in the 1960s and who does a lot of figurative work over his his time and he is using this figurative art to do works that are abstracted figures that are that that borrow the best from something that is incredibly recognizable mm-hmm. on one hand and also foreign yeah. and powerful because of its emotional charge from the abstraction it is uh, it, it is one of the works that you see as you exit. Yeah. Powerful. So Walter's piece though, leads me to another piece that's right when you enter, which is, um, another work by Jen Tolman that's called, and we should die. Yes. Which, um, is essentially the same narrative. It's a spirit rising up into heaven. And it, the description talks about her contemplating mortality and all of that, but it is, very similar in its structure. Um, it doesn't have the outstretched arms, but it's the same kind of this woman rising up to the heavens dressed in white, um, centered on the canvas and the background of it. Maybe it's just me, but I, if you take the figure out, it's a Rothko painting. Like, Oh, that's interesting. Right. It, it's uh it's a horizon line. It's sky and it's, it's a land. muted palette of a Rothko Yeah, But painting. it's very similar to Walter's, but it is very, um, feminine and equally emotional all at the same time. Same as Walter's is where his is very, I mean, it's dark red, it's stark colors. And this one is very, um, pale and comforting and, and equally moving. I don't, I've never had a conversation that I know of with Jen Tolman. I've noticed her work over so, the years. Sorry, Jen, if we've yeah. talk, talked many times and, before. And, and, um, I am, I've, I've loved her work. I've never seen her do anything nearly this large in scale. No, most of her works tend to be on on the smaller eight and a half by eleven. The ones I've seen she, in person, size yeah. are smaller, and um, it was it was it, it was wonderful to see. Let me move to a um, to a uh, a piece that I think is going to be a crowd favorite. Mm-hmm. It is as long as nobody breaks it. <laughs> I know. I almost bumped into it. It is enormous. It's called Ask of God. It's by Jana Siebert, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She's originally from Taiwan, and she lives in um, in Utah now. And um, I'll read the label. It says, Describing your conversion, Siebert wrote, At 15, I started to read the Bible, hoping to learn about Jesus. At 19, the missionaries found me, but I remained aloof, fearing I would join the wrong church. One day, they showed me the first vision, and my heart felt a force that I could not comprehend. I decided I could ask God for myself. After my family was asleep, I knelt down to pray for the first time in my life. And then that ends the quotation, and the rest of the label says, Inspired by Joseph's willingness to pray and Siebert's own experience with prayer, this artwork spells out James 1.5 in American Sign Language and is an invitation to ponder the verse. Siebert said, Joseph's meditation changed human history on both sides of the veil. And when you look at it, it must be... Um, four and a half, if not five feet 
by six to eight feet Mm -hmm. long. It is a series of one, two, three, four, five, six shelves that have residing on them plaster casts of hands that are frozen in American Sign Language positions that together make the words of the verse James one five, mm-hmm. and something I noticed, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but I noticed that even the hands, when they were repeated symbols, looked like different hands. So it wasn't as if she used the same hand over and over and over again. It seems like there are different hands that were in it, which also has a whole nother level of of uh, of potential um, depth, because then you're talking about the hands of many people going into. Mm-hmm. into the creation of this work. And it just, you know, it, it'll be something that you can walk by with kids and say, wow, that's a lot of fun. That's one level. The other level is yeah. that it is a very thoughtful and and not just symbolic, but on an execution level, mm-hmm. powerful piece. Yeah. Very powerful. Very impressed by it. Um, is there another work you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about Rose? Yes. Let's talk <laughs> about Rose's piece. We got to talk about Rose. Um, Rose Day Talk Dolls piece. Rose is a perennial favorite of of many people, including us. Yeah, mostly us. We haven't, we haven't had a chance to even sit down and interview Rose yet. No. And she's been on our list, and she is. She said after I move, yep. she's moving from Virginia this week to Utah. Yep. And uh, we're going to be involved in a major exhibition of her work. So, so forthcoming interview, but current fans. So her piece in the show is titled... Living Waters, and for the record, I seem to remember the last, the tenth international art competition. Her piece for that one was like the figurehead of the show. Like it was on all the banners, it was on all the marketing materials, it was all over the place. Right. So she kind of had a lot to live up to. <laughs> um, it's she has has to follow in her own shadow, and I think she knocked it out of the park. I love this painting living waters and the description for it says it depicts the moment just before the healing at the pool of Bethesda while the infirm reached desperately for the pool at dusk Christ enters unseen ushering in brightness, hope and healing. She says that she painted Christ in warm, vibrant tones and he's the source of healing, eternal life and salvation to me. If I close my eyes and try and picture the painting again, I can only picture two things blue and yellow. (laughs) It is it's not monotone, it's bitone. I no, suppose. but it's a it's a very it restricted so... palette that is effectively mm-hmm. used to communicate uh, to, to to lend color to the narrative. So mm-hmm. the blue is darker, it's it has the hints of something being um somewhat depressed, yeah. right? And and downtrodden. And Christ is surrounded by this yellow goldish light that by contrast looks is brilliant and it is it's it, 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 you get the sense of inevitability of Christ's color mm-hmm. enveloping and overtaking the blue color. And then there's this really subtle reflection of the light just starting to show in the water as yeah. he's approaching and is just starting to reflect back up on the man who's reaching out to the pool. Yeah. So this play of light and dark where she, most paintings you look at and there's a light source, right? Mm-hmm. The light is supposed to be up top to the left and that's what, decides where all the shadows are going to be and all that. She put the light source dead center in the middle of the painting behind everything. Mm. (laughs) Christ is the light source and he's centered in the painting and it works and you still get the dimension and you still get the structure of the, the walls and the arches around it. And it is just, it's 
amazing to look at. You, this is one of these bugaboos in in Mormon. I almost said Mormon. Shouldn't have said. Shouldn't have gone there. In Latter Day Saint art culture, which is there are certain touchstone paintings that, as an artist, you would probably want to avoid depicting because everybody has the piece that signifies that subject so we're not going to touch it and one of them is Carl Block's Pool of Bethesda and if you were to say to me you know what as an artist I think I'm going to try and do my own original take on that Mm -hmm. I would say you should go for it there should be as as many original takes as on a subject as possible but it's always hard Mm -hmm. to break free of the orbit the gravitational pull of such an influential work and subject. And she has done it. She broke free of it, created an original work that had something to say that was in her own Mm -hmm. um, lexicon, and it is as powerful as I've ever seen a work done. Which is interesting, because oftentimes we look at a lot of paintings by accomplished artists, and we can say, I know what painting you were looking at. I know exactly where you got the idea for that painting. Yeah, it goes back to Picasso's idea of good artists don't copy, they steal. Yeah, but this painting... I look at it and I, I don't see Karl Block's influence in it at all. She was doing the Pool of Bethesda and trying to avoid Karl Block at all costs. And it would have been very easy to copy how he did it and the way he structured that painting and yeah. to put her own style on it, but she didn't do that. She made it entirely her own. So I have to apologize for how I'm pronouncing this name. Uh-oh. It's a work that there's a part of me that... When I when I lived in Latin America, they uh, and I and, and I lived in Chile, and and there were a lot of communists in Chile. One of the biggest <laughs> insults they could give you is they could call you a consumista, a consumer, mm-hmm. somebody who just the way that you valued things was by buying and owning it, right? A very Western idea. When I saw this, I said to Laura, um, "How how do you contact an artist to to buy a work?" And and I, that's got to be a question you get. And um, she said, oh, yeah, we get that question. We just tell them to contact the church, uh, not the church, the um, the gift shop in the museum, and the gift shop passes your name on to the artist. And this is, I haven't done it yet, so whoever wants gives to go ahead and do it. gives a lot of power to the gift shop. It does. Um, and I, I apologize, Elizabeth, if I'm saying your, non, your name wrong, but Elizabeth um, Coamore, um, she lives in, in Germany, She's originally from Arizona, and it is a paper cutout of the first vision that um, is multi-layered in its cutting out of the paper in order to create a very um, deep, what you would call if it was sculpture, a high relief. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, it's paper. It's still yeah, two-dimensional. It's, like, it's piece, almost it's, the thickness of like a ream of printer paper. Like it's yeah, that many layers. It's that many layers. And it's it's not a large work. It's only 16 by 12 inches. And it depicts Joseph Smith and the first vision. And I don't know about you, but I almost, because we have such strong views of what a subject is in our minds already, mm-hmm. um, it's great when, and it's hard to find a work that when you see it, it leaves space for you to have your own vision mm-hmm. of what it looks like. And the fact that this is white paper yeah. with no color, that it's the silhouettes of figures, it, 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 it is a powerful participatory experience looking at an image like this. Yeah, like I was saying before, when I went around my own ward and took photos of all of the paintings in the building to talk about the art in our building, I think there was six different versions of the first vision and they were all green like 
The mm-hmm. overwhelming feeling is it is a boy and two beings in white or sometimes one being in white um, with a green background. Um, and it was, I think there's six different versions of that. And to my previous point about, you know, a Mongolian immigrant coming in trying to figure out what we believe, um, they would they would probably wonder what's going on in the green woods of this place that they've stepped into where this one gives you a completely separate perspective and helps you look at it a different way. Hmm. Do you have one that you want to add? Do you want to talk about? Um, should we talk about a couple more H? I, yeah, I only have one more that you want to talk about. Yeah. Okay. I've got two more that I want to talk about then. I, I did a bad job of taking pictures of things is my problem. I, I liked so much. I forgot to take pictures. You were of too busy being a, a chatty Chad. That's also true. Yeah. I'm a chatty Chad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all right. Art's so, a social experience too. Yeah. That's okay. So, so what's your piece? Um, the last one, which I really enjoyed was another work by, oh, it says Anne Henry Nader. I've only ever seen it as Annie Henry Nader, but it's, uh, it's a triptych. It's titled Mercy's Embrace. And it is a figural piece with five figures in it. There's two women on each side of the triptych, each tick. (laughs) Yeah. It's the, it's the wings of the triptych as if it was an altarpiece in Catholicism. Yeah. And then. Christ in the middle holding two sheep, also slightly a glow. I won't call it a halo. I'll call it a glow. Um, But it's interesting because it says it's made of acrylic, oil, gesso, charcoal, and metallic paint on wood panel. It is truly a mixed media piece, which is a lot of the stuff she does, but I've never seen something on this scale. It's five and a half feet tall by four feet wide. Um, In this just beautifully rendered um figurative work but also these amazing lilies and this kind of background with these like impressions of palm fronds it was just really beautiful and really complete and finished feeling it it was one of the most finished pieces that i saw there and i was really impressed by it um because a lot of the things i've seen from her in the past have been small and much less figural Hmm. and so i was um very pleasantly surprised to see how big and imposing this was and then just how how visually appealing it was so micah your your piece yeah how many more do you have i have a lot more that i could talk about but i'm only going to talk about a we've couple we've been doing this for an hour already we I know. could do this for i know five. i know and i don't want to i don't want to stop i could go there's 151 really pieces in this show i know i know i want to talk about i feel like we haven't done enough to talk about the sculpture that's in the show and um there were there were so many pieces i, w- I could talk about but one that I want to talk about in particular is Annette Everett's work that's titled Gratitude. It is a, a multifigural sculpture of one, two, three, four, five women um, who are all um, uh, getting, um, they're, they're leaning over picking up sheaves of wheat. And it's hard not to think of Jean, Jean-Francois Millet's The Gleaners when you look at this work. Um, and she says it's inspired by Jules Breton's Song of the Lark. Jules Breton one of my favorite French artists of the last, well, the third quarter of the 19th century. Um, Powerful Breton painter who focused on a lot of women and menial tasks at a time when there was a push towards a kind of higher political transcendent art that was higher on the hierarchy of academic work. And to depict peasants Mm -hmm. was a act of rebellion. I don't think it's as much of an act of rebellion here. 
but it is a powerful depiction of women, of labor. There's one woman who's standing above the crowd of women, but the others are bent over in these these poses that are strenuous. And her work in it is it's it's very strong. Um, it's one of the pieces that I looked at and I thought that could be in, in almost any competition in any part of the world. Mm-hmm. And whether you were religious or not, you would look at it and you would say, that is something that communicates universal values yeah. that we can all be proud of. And it was inspiring. It that's, was figurative work at its best. That's an interesting standard to hold something to is could this hold up in any competition in the world? Yeah. I'm not going to prognosticate on that, but maybe as you all are going through this competition on your own, think about that and think about other places you've been and what what would feel like it fits where. There are two works by by a longtime LDS artist that I felt like were as powerful as as anything I've ever seen them done. One was Brian Kershiznik, where he depicts it's called an issue of blood, but you see the just the crowd. You don't see the woman. Um, there's another one by Michael Mom, which is maybe he just gets better. He goes from strength to strength on a regular basis called um, He Healed Them All by Michael Mom. But the one that I want to end on. <laughs> drum roll, please. No, I don't know if it's a if if it's a, a drum roll is. <laughs> well, it's just I, I don't know where lower to expectations is a yeah. work that is. You know, you you would argue that this that 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 this this could be one of the ones that it meets that idea of expanding the canon, and you know where my wheelhouse is. My wheelhouse is traditional academic art. That's what I was trained in, and I feel like I'm an omnivore, who I'm interested in art from wherever it comes from. Yes, this is my background, but I'm open to wherever it comes from in any style medium um, that that it is. This is by Stephanie Bill- Billings, and it's called "The Heavenly Host Praising God." I have got a subject that I keep, a a notebook that I keep of subjects that I've never seen depicted in the church. And um, I think I'm up to maybe 300 that show up in biblical scripture, Doctrine and Covenants, church history, and Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, all of that. I did not have this one because it's not a new subject, but it's a new perspective. And it was the perspective of the birth of Christ from the angels. Mm -hmm. And it has angels of all different kinds. It looks fairly illustrative. It is not the kind of work that is a traditionalist, even though it's figurative. And also it's, it's very evocative. It does, it does exactly what it needs to do. It puts you in that moment. It makes you feel tremendous joy and you know exactly what's happening in it. I don't know if I would say that it is, um, on par with some of the technical um, execution of other works. But art doesn't always have to reach technically, at least from, and that's where my wheelhouse is. I'm often interested in, in, in just the technique perspective, which I think is very important. This has all the technique where it matters. It's a very strong piece, and it's the kind of thing that I would want to have in my home. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful piece. Overall, I felt like walking through this competition, I was uplifted. It's just what you wanted to do. Yeah. I was constantly discovering new names. Yep. I was surprised by the names that I already knew and the work that they were doing. So I wasn't, nothing felt felt tired. Nope. Nothing felt um, 
Um, Everything uh, felt new. It was just... Felt current. And the church, it expanded the exhibition space that they put it in. It felt like everything filled the space. I was just very grateful to the people who organized and put it on. And I felt um, proud, proud to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Not not that I had anything to do with the competition. Proud to be a part of this culture. Yeah. And I had that's a good, what I felt. I had a good conversation yesterday with Paige Anderson, who is one of the artists in it, and Kirk Richards, who... Both of whom an, we've interviewed before. Yeah, is an artist, but judged this iteration of it. And they both just seemed happy about it. They seemed... Kirk was happy how it ended up, that all of the the judging of it went really well and there wasn't conflict between the judges that they were able to come together and really choose 151 works that were really representative. And they were happy with it. And the artists seemed like they were thrilled to be a part of a show of this caliber. Um, And it's a rare opportunity. It's once every three years we get this show. Um, And by my judgment, it seems to get better each and every three years. Um, therefore what I'm saying is this is the best one <laughs> that's ever happened. <laughs> that's ever happened. I, yeah. I'm very pleased with it and I'm excited. It opens officially, um, on the 15th of March, which so, is this Friday. Good job. Artist. Good job. Church history museum. Um, thank you for allowing us to come and preview and to have a, uh, have the, the opportunity to maybe have a little bit of of uh, influence and cheering on uh, what our art community is doing. So with that, I guess, thank you for listening to this edition of the Zion Art Podcast. Thank you, Eric, for for not only being a part of this and lending your perspective, because you're not always on air, but we need more of you on the air. We do need more of me. You actually do the hard work of producing this and editing it. So thank you for for doing that. If you are interested in um, sharing this episode, you can go to our website or to see images or links to the contest. Go to zionartsociety.org. You'll also be able to see archives of past interviews. You can go to iTunes and see other interviews we've done. And let me add, we're going to post images of all the paintings we talked about on our website also okay. on this most current one. So you can see those and we're going to cheat and we're going to show you some of those images okay. um, as soon Not as cheating. this goes up, which is about 12 hours before the <laughs> exhibition opens. So uh, on zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab, you'll be able to see all the, the paintings that we talked about here. Thank you for listening.